Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. God had chosen David to be Israel's next king, but David didn't become right aw- king right away. For a while, he stayed at home with his family and tended the sheep. One day, David took his food to his brothers in the army. They were fighting against the Philistines, who were enemies of Israel. At the battlefield, David saw a huge Philistine soldier named Goliath. He was over nine feet tall. His coat of armor weighed more than a hundred pounds. Each day, Goliath shouted at the army of Israel, challenging them to send out a man to fight him. All the men of Israel's army were really scared to fight Goliath. But David said that he would fight Goliath because whenever David tended the sheep, he killed a bear and a lion. He knew God had protected him then and God would protect him in a fight against the Philistine. King Saul gave David his armor, but it was too big for David to wear. Instead, David went to meet Goliath with only his staff and a sling and five smooth stones. Goliath made fun of David, but David said, I come to you in the name of the Lord, and I will strike you down. David placed a stone in the sling and swung it around. The stone flew and hit Goliath right in the forehead. Goliath fell to the ground, and David ran up and took his sword. Then the Philistines saw that Goliath was dead. They all ran away. Well, hey, welcome everybody as we continue in our series called Grown Up Gospel. What we're trying to do is look at some pretty popular stories if you grew up in the Jesus tribe and ask the question, how has our understanding of well-known stories in the Bible grown up with us? Because if we have a six-year-old understanding of God when we're 60, there's going to be some disconnect there. And so today is probably one of the biggest stories in all of the Bible. It's David and Goliath, David and the giant. And here's the deal. When you talk about this story, it has transcended more than just the church. There's a a website that they're called Top Tens, and they asked people that are followers of Jesus and not, what are the top 10 stories in all of Scripture? And number one, rightfully so, is a story about crucifixion. Number two, behind crucifixion was David and Goliath. It's so big that a popular writer... Um, wrote a book about David and Goliath, one of my favorites, Malcolm Gladwell. He wrote a book called David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. It was a New York Times bestseller. One commentator said this story is so compelling and well-known that it becomes the primary historical metaphor for Western culture for describing any individual or group who overcomes seemingly insurmountable odds to defeat an oppressor. (laughs) And so we teach this story of David and Goliath from when we're kids to when we're adults. I, I did some reading this week on different ways that we remember these stories. There's a, a couple shows way back in the day called House Party and People Are Funny, uh, hosted by a guy named Art Linklider. And, and I love when people ask kids, tell us the theme of stories. So we had some of his kids, some of these kids on his TV show. 
And he said to him, what was the purpose, the theme, the story of David and Goliath? And one boy, 10 years old, just said one word. He said, the theme is duck. (laughs) I loved it. It makes sense to me. Sarah, age 10, said, big people don't get to do all the big things. I believe in God. We can do anything. As a vertically challenged person, I I appreciate Sarah here. Uh, Another one, James, age 11, said, if you believe in God, he'll be there for you when you need him. And he'll help you do the things you usually aren't capable of doing. And they, they all kind of follow a theme or a pattern that God is bigger than the big things that we face in our life and that he will deliver. And that's fantastic. I need to know whether I'm six or 60 that my God is bigger than my giants. I need to know that. But the problem becomes, what if our understanding of that story stays there? I'm afraid sometimes it does. And then I kept reading and I did some research on how we teach this story to adults. And there was themes that kept popping up, right? Let me, let me read you one that I found at the top of the Google search. It said, the story of David and Goliath, quote, five smooth stones that you can use to battle giants in your own life with courage, confidence, preparation, trust, and victory you too can overcome. Another uh, website said it's with the spirit of God, past experience, the word of God, a vision of something big, and a heart full of faith you can take down the giants that you face. We're really enamored by this idea of the five stones. I, I was talking to a friend of mine actually this morning, and he had been to Israel and he's taking a tour, and, and they take you to the valley where this happens, and they said, this is the site where David beat Goliath, and everybody says, this is the site, and they say, this is it, and then they read a couple Bible verses, and he said he noticed some people starting to put rocks in their pockets, kind of collect them as souvenirs, and he leaned over to the tour guide and said, they're taking the rocks, and the tour guide said, that's okay, about once a week there's a big dump truck that comes in and dumps a bunch of pebbles, we're going to be fine, you know? It's the idea that we, we really love this story and we want souvenirs to take home and show the kids and be like, this might have been the one that David used. My favorite was a meme that I found and it said, sometimes God puts Goliaths in your life for you to find the David within. Here's the problem. If our understanding of that story stops there, about giants and about stones and about victories, what, what happens when our faith grows out of that narrative? Because... If our faith remains at a three-year-old understanding when we're 30, what happens when the giants win? Because sometimes they do, (laughs) you know? What happens when the the narrative that we tell each other, the, the wins that we talk about, what happens when the Sunday school lessons that we were told seemingly don't fit in adult-shaped life? And this is one of the most prominent stories in all of the Bible. And maybe, maybe we've read it in the right way, but also not in a full way. Maybe this is about more than stones. Maybe it's about more than giants, and maybe it's even about more than David. And that's what I want to talk about this morning as we, as we grow up this story. But before we do that, we're going to take some time and do what we do every week at Crossroads. We're going to pray. We're going to set our heart right because, may we live in a culture of critique. We live in a culture that wants to tear down so we can be built up, and that's not what the church is called to do. So we're going to take some time and just pray. Specifically, I'm going to ask that you pray for you, that you ask the Holy Spirit to show you the character of God that we see in the story of David and Goliath, that we might become contributors to the conversation of faith and move past being critics of it, that God does something, whether I do my job well today or not, because God is active through his word. And then I'm going to ask that you pray for me, um, that I teach the word well and show us a big picture of God's character. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful that we can gather together wherever we are and open the scriptures and learn about you. I'm thankful that that the stories we read in the Old Testament grow up with us. I'm thankful 
that you're big enough to handle our questions at 3 and 30. I'm thankful for who you are and your majesty. I'm thankful for the truth of the scriptures and the story of David and Goliath that we get to talk about this morning. My prayer today is that we hear the word and that it shapes us, that, that we look more like Jesus today because we see Jesus in our scriptures. And so I'd ask if you're comfortable, take a couple seconds right now and just say a prayer that the Holy Spirit might teach you this morning and form you this morning as we try and look more like God. And I'd ask that you pray for me, that I do a good job in talking about God's word, and that we see maybe a different perspective from the scriptures that we haven't seen before. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, wherever they're at, amen, let's go. So the story of David and Goliath, it has three main components, no matter who's telling you, where you're reading it from, a leadership course, a Sunday school teacher, there are three components. There is a giant, there is a, an underdog, and there is a hero, which, spoiler alert, is David in this story and how you've heard it before. So what I want to do is, is use those three constructs to kind of break down our understanding of the story this morning. I want to walk through the idea of the giant. I want to walk through the idea of David being an underdog and the idea of David himself and look at maybe what God is teaching us through this text. So we start at the beginning, and, and, and we read it on the screen before in the video, and you've read it before. There's a really big man. It says that in the text, right at the beginning of chapter 17, Goliath was bigger than everybody else. And, and your Bible's going to have some height on there. Some Bibles say nine feet, some say six foot nine, some say six foot seven. And let me tell you, the purpose of that text is not for us to know his measurements so we can fit him for a suit. The purpose is to know that he was way bigger than everybody else. An average Jewish man, that time, that place was about five foot three. So if he's six foot seven, which is where most of the commentators are going to come down on, if he's almost seven feet tall to a five foot, th five foot three person, that looks massive. And that is what the writer is trying to convey, that he's the biggest person you've ever seen. He was the biggest person they've ever seen, and with that strikes fear in the heart of people. And it says, it kind of sets the stage in verse 3. It says the Philistines were standing on one hill and the Israelites were on another hill with a valley beneath them. And if you know the geography of how Israel was laid out at the time, Israel had this mountain range to the east where most of the big cities were. And they built big cities on mountain ranges because it was a strategic advantage in battle to have the high ground. And there was the plains, the coastal plains on this side of the Mediterranean. And the Philistines, which would be the biggest foe of the Israelites for a couple hundred years, the Philistines were people from the sea. They were from Crete. And so they snuck in the coastal plains and traveled up to the high grounds to meet Israel. Saul gets word of it and takes his armies, and they meet in the middle. And so on one ridge is the Philistines, on the other ridge is Israel, in beneath, in between is this valley. And so what they did next was in verse 8 and 9, it says, Choose for yourself a man that he may come down to meet me. If he's able to fight with me and strike me down, we will become your servants." But if I prevail against him and strike him down, you will become our servants and serve us. This was a common warfare tactic at the time called single combat warfare. 
because any army that was going to attack had to go down to a valley before it ascended up to the other side. You put yourself in a, in a, in a place to get massacred. And so they said, let's stop all the bloodshed. I'm going to give you my best warrior. You give me your best warrior and they'll hash it out. And who wins stands for the whole people. And so that's what the Philistines did. Israel hadn't had much experience with this kind of battle. It came from the Philistine and their kinds of people. And so for 40 days, it says in verse 16, for 40 days, Goliath stood there. He approached every morning and every evening and he took his position. Every morning he'd get up and he'd march in the middle and he'd say, come and fight me. Every morning he'd get up and he'd march in the middle and he'd say, I can beat your best. Why are you afraid? Why are you scared? Where is your God and your people? For 40 days. It brings me to David. So we have a giant and with the giant comes David. Here's a question I want to ask. Why was David there? I think if you would have asked me this before I got into the text this week, I honestly don't know if I would have had the right answer to that question. Why is David there? Because in the traditional telling of the story, David's there to defeat his giants. But that's not exactly true. If you read in the text, David isn't there at all to even fight or face or talk to giants at all. If you look at verse 17 to 19, David's dad said, Take your brothers this piece of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread. Go quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these ten portions of cheese to their commanding officer. Find out how your brothers are doing and bring back their pledge that they received the goods. Verse 19, they are with Saul and the whole Israelite army in the valley of Elah fighting the Philistines. David is about 15 miles from the battleground, so he leaves his house early in the morning, runs, walks, sprints 15 miles to go see his brothers simply to drop off food. Why was David there? David wasn't there to face giants that day. He was there to support and nourish the people that were. And that, that's where the tension of this text comes in a little bit, is when he's there providing food for the fighters, he hears it says in verse 24, it says, He spoke, Goliath got up and he spoke, and David heard it. When all the men of Israel saw this man, they retreated from his presence, and they were very afraid. In verse 25, this is part of the crux of the tension. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's coming up? He does so to defy Israel. And so David is dropping off food for his siblings. And he hears in the background this giant man making fun of Israel and humiliating them, and then because of um, their God, he's making fun of their God, and he says, who's going to stop him? It continues on in our text. It says, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defies the armies of the living God? He says right before then, who's humiliating us, and why is nobody doing anything to stop it? When I'm reading this story, and I ask the question, why was David there? The simple answer is he came to bring food. And then when he started hearing Goliath make fun of his people, his king, his brothers, and ultimately his God, he took it very, very personally. And we know that's true because if you keep reading in the story, as he's asking questions about why nobody is doing anything about this guy that's making fun of his people and his God, his oldest brother, who he came to bring food to, says, what are you still doing here? Who did you leave the sheep with? Basically, go home. This is not your place. And so one of the first things we see in our text is that David wasn't there to fight his Goliath in the first place because Goliath wasn't his giant. 
He was there to bring food to his brothers, and he saw this person that absolutely mocked his people and his God, and he couldn't stand for it anymore. In verse 45, you kind of get his gist. He replied to, to, to Goliath, you're coming against me with a sword and spear and javelin. I'm coming against you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel's armies, whom you have defied. So David and Goliath fundamentally isn't a battle over David's giants. It's a battle over God's glory. From the get-go, it's never about David facing his personal giants because he needs to get to the other side or he needs to beat this, this giant of poverty or sickness or whatever you want to fill in the blank there with all his five stones of relaxation, rest, scripture reading, and fill in the blank. David and Goliath is a story about God's glory, not David's giants. He was just supposed to get there, drop some food off, and go home. And so what we see and why that matters, why that actually matters is because if we make this a story about David's personal giants and we forget that it's about God's glory and not David's personal giants, what happens when our giants win? What happens? Because if we want to take down the giant of cancer or the giant of poverty or the giant of racism or the giant of fill in the blank here and seemingly one of those wins out over our lifetime, what does it mean? Does it mean you have the wrong stones? Does it mean if you would have tried a little harder, God then would have delivered you? Does it mean that maybe if you pressed more into discipleship or devotions or prayer or faith, then God would have delivered? If it's about David's giants and being delivered from that, what happens when our giants seemingly beat us? Because we live in a broken world. We have two options there. One is it forces us to believe that we didn't do enough. It forces us to believe we didn't believe enough or pray enough or live rightly enough, it forces us to believe that we didn't do enough to earn God's deliverance, and that is not the message of grace that the scriptures teach us. That turns a culture of grace into a culture of shame. (laughs) It turns a culture of grace into a culture of you didn't do enough to earn God's goodness. But the entire scripture says God's goodness is given because he's good, not that we earned it. And so one, if if we're battling a giant and we think this story is about victory instead of God's glory, we we fall way short sometimes, and our, our, our idea of, our definition of God falls short when sometimes the giants seemingly win. So we, we believe that we're not good enough for God, which we're not, but it stops there, and it doesn't tell the other half that story, which is God chose us anyway because he's good. Or two, and this is the harder one, the story we were told from when we were kids about God being greater than our giants falls short, and we don't believe it anymore. And we don't believe that God's bigger than the things that we face. We lose hope. So when we talk about the story of David and Goliath, when we talk about what he's telling us in this text, the thing we have to realize is his story wasn't necessarily about winning. It was about God's glory. And David is standing up for God's glory. And let me tell you why that matters, because it leads to freedom. Because David won this, and that's really great. But, but sometimes, and there's messages, there's, there's stories in the scriptures about this, when God's people that, that tried to make God's glory known didn't necessarily in the moment win. Paul talks about it in his writings. He said, I got this problem that I can't get rid of, and God hasn't gotten rid of it for me. Why not? And Paul says it so I can learn to depend on God. In that moment, he didn't say, I didn't have the right five stones, otherwise God would have given me victory. He said, God is teaching me something in the middle, and I can bring glory to God whether I win this or whether I lose this, whether I live or whether I die, I can bring glory to God. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're staring down the face of death in the furnace, and they say, choose to betray God. And they say, man, if we die, God is still good. 
We will bring glory to God regardless of the outcome, life or death here. And this is not about David being victorious. It's about God's glory going forward. It's a story of God's glory, not about David's giants. That's the purpose of and where we start this idea is it's about the glorified God, not a glorified victory. No matter how many stones you have or how hard you try, David's there because he's fighting for the name of the God that he follows because nobody else would. And that's what we get to do every day. That's what we get to do whether we feel like we're winning or losing. That's what we get to do. And it doesn't threaten the character of God if we have a good day, if we have a bad day, if cancer still takes somebody I love or doesn't take somebody I love. It doesn't mean that we don't fight for God's glory and that God's not worthy of the glory that we fight for when we talk about how good God is. It's freeing if this message isn't about victory over giants but is about the glory of the God that's worthy of the glory he's given. So that's the idea of, of, of the giant. It's not about the giant. It's about God's glory. But then there's also this, this theme that pops up every time. It's a massive underdog story, right? Every time we tell the story, it's about the little guy beating the big guy. David is the little guy. As a little guy, man, I've heard this story and hoped in this story all of my life. But here's the thing. I wonder if, I wonder if, David wasn't necessarily the underdog that we paint him to be. Even in the text, Saul makes it seems like he's an underdog. In verse 33, David goes to the king and says, nobody's going to fight, I'm going to fight. And the king of Israel says this, he says, you aren't able to go against the Philistine to fight him. You're just a boy. He's been a warrior all of his life. And so we build this case for him being an underdog really on three components. One, it's a, it's a, it's a boy versus seasoned warrior. Uh, two, it's uh, stones that he's going to take versus swords and shields of Goliath and armor. And so he's got some pebbles, and, and, and Goliath has all of this advanced weaponry. And, and then finally, it's just sheer size. So you have this small kid versus large giant. And so we build this case around David being this massive underdog. But let me tell you something. I, I don't think David was. I don't think David was as much of an underdog as we think he was. Let's just look at the idea that, that Goliath was a warrior and David was just a young kid who was in the wrong place or the right place at the right time. But that's not the narrative he sells us when he talks to Saul. Saul challenges his warriorness as a little man and his Napoleon syndrome takes off. And he says, guys, let me tell you how much of a warrior I am. I'm just going to read it to you. This is David's response to Saul. He said, your servant has been a shepherd of his father's flocks. Whenever a lion or a bear would come and carry off a sheep of the flock, I would go after it, strike it down, and rescue the sheep from his He would run after lions, not away from lions. That is not, that is not a mentality of a pacifist. He is a warrior. He said, I would take it from its mouth. If it rose up against me, I would grab it by its jaw, strike it, and kill it. Your servant has struck down both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them. Free has defied the armies of the living God. David went on to say, the Lord who delivered me from the lion and the bear will also deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, go, the Lord be with you. So let's just take that one for what it's worth. In terms of was David a warrior? Yes. You can't kill lions, tigers, and bears, oh my, and not have some bit of street cred when it comes to fighting things, all right? So he killed all of these massive animals as a wee little lad, and, and he said, guys, I have skins on the wall here. I'm not what you're looking at. I'm more of a warrior than you think. And Saul's convinced enough to say, yeah, okay, you, you go for it then if you think you can do it. Two, 
Let's talk about the second thing that we think makes him an underdog. He's got a couple pebbles, and Goliath has some swords and big shields. And it's true, Goliath actually had swords and big shields, but you have to understand ancient warfare to understand what's happening in this text. Because if you come to me and you play the game Charlie Pick Your Weapon and you say, here's a sword and a shield and here's some pebbles that I found in a creek bed, I'm picking the sword and shield. But that's not exactly what's happening in this story. So in ancient warfare, there were three different kinds of warriors. You had your heavy infantry, you had your cavalry, and you had your, um, your throwers, essentially, or you had the people like your archers. You had people that dealt with flying objects. And to be sure, Goliath in our story is absolutely heavy infantry. That's why it lays out exactly how much stuff he put on his body to help him. Because in close warfare, when you're battling other people with swords, you need armor. And so he had what's roughly 126 pounds worth of armor on his body. The head of his spear alone was 15 pounds as a shot put. He was a huge man with lots of armor. And that's why he says to the Israelite army, find your champion. And he says, come to me, because heavy infantry fought in close quarters. Hand-to-hand combat. We've all seen the movies. That's one of them. But here's the problem, is that we're looking at David through the lens of heavy infantry, and he wasn't heavy infantry. David was a shepherd. David was artillery. And there are stories that go back thousands of years that talk about the necessity of artillery and warfare, not just bows and arrows. So we say a slingshot, and you think like I think, the slingshot that you want at Chuck E. Cheese for 17,000 coupons and $450 of your parents' money that you thought was a steal. And so you have this little wooden contraption with these flimsy little rubber bands and this pocket, and you'd break things back, you'd put a little pebble in there, and you'd let it fly, and it'd go kind of fast. That's not what David had. David had a sling. He had a pocket, probably about this-ish big, that could fit a stone the size of a baseball or a small grapefruit or a tennis ball. And, and he attached to it leather straps so he could hold it right here and he could swing it like this. And as he swung it, probably six or seven times a second, it went around in a circle. He built up momentum and then he would let it fly. David was artillery. The problem is we think he was a kid with a slingshot. But that slingshot was incredibly deadly. In Malcolm Gladwell's book on David and Goliath, he goes into some of the ballistics on it, on ancient warfare and artillery and slingshots. And he talks about the fact that if he would have spun it at six or seven times a minute and he would have let this thing fly, it would leave his pouch at 35 meters per second, give or take, which is almost 80, 90 miles an hour. And if it's a rock the size of a tennis ball, that's going to do some damage. Not to mention, he goes into detail and says that if you're looking at the stones in that region, they were actually from barium sulfate, which is a rock that's twice as dense as most other rocks. He had a small shot put that he'd get going at about 90 miles an hour, and it struck Goliath in the head. This wasn't a kid with a toy. And we know it wasn't because David killed things with it. In Judges, it talks about how this military artillery troop could literally hit the smallest of targets. You can read other ancient texts and they talk about people using slingshots to kill birds in mid-flight. So my point is David didn't get lucky, close his eyes and say, Jesus, take the wheel, God, take the stone, go. He, He was a skilled artillery warrior. And so when he, in the latter part of the story, starts fighting the Philistine, it says David reached into his bag and took out a stone, again, not a stone that we think, and he slug it. 
striking the Philistine in the forehead, the stone sank deeply into his head and he fell to his face and he fell down on the ground on his face. We think that it's the story of this child boy with a toy that got lucky and God is sovereign. And I, I just don't think that's the case that it's making. I don't think that David was as big of an underdog as we think. And we tell you why that's important because oftentimes we think the sovereignty of God, the control of God happens when God wants it to and surprises us when people get lucky. But that's not the picture the, the scripture paint about God's sovereignty. Over and over again, we think that sovereignty is more of a surprise, but we think that sovereignty and discipline don't go hand in hand, but they're two sides of the same coin. God often uses our strengths to magnify his glory because he gave us those strengths in the first place. So this is a story about God using the strengths that he gave David to bring about the most glory to his name. It's a story you can get on board with if that's our purpose in this world too. That God uses the things that we've crafted and honed over years, uses our discipline because of how he's made us to tell other people, look at how amazing my God is. Kind of a funny story. I, I uh, am two things that make me louder than most people. One, I am deaf in one ear, and so I really can't tell how loud I am most of the time. And two, I'm a middle child, so starved for attention from birth. And I remember in high school, I was always loud, and I'd get excited and tell stories, and I couldn't tell when my voice was, still can't, when it's getting too loud. And so in high school, everybody projects pride, but really you're just a fragile, insecure kid that's hoping not to get shown or exposed (laughs) growing up. And so I remember um, when I would tell stories to people sometimes, especially friends of friends, or when we met new people, I would get really excited and loud, and my my friends and I had a code word to let me know when I was getting too loud because I couldn't tell. They just didn't want to say, hey, Deffy, stop it. You're embarrassing us. You know, I can say that because it's me. They, they literally said, well, what if we say the word tomorrow? So we'd be in conversations with people and I'd be getting loud and couldn't tell. And my buddy would just have me like, hey, we got that thing tomorrow. And I'm like, yes, we, yes, we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> That's how it would go all the time. And, and I would know then to take it down a notch. So think of it like this. We did our first live stream, I don't know, probably a month ago. It feels like 17 years ago. Um, and it's the first time we had people in this building again. We were very excited. And, and since we pared back a bit because the cases haven't gone in the right direction. And I remember that you probably were watching. And if you were watching, it soon stopped because our building got struck by lightning and we lost all power, which means that for the hundred and change people in this room that are spread out over the size of this room, which is large, they lost the ability for my voice to be projected, right? But guess what happened? I have a loud voice, everybody. And so I just kept on going. It's a funny way to say that God uses the strength that he's given us to bring glory to his name. Somebody shot me an email after that week and said, I don't know what it was, but I couldn't even tell your mic went off. (laughs) I said, I'll take that as a compliment, you know? And they just said, thank you for that. And so my point simply there is so often the things that we think hold us back are things that that give God more glory because that's how he made us. And that's what's happening in our story. So David says, I'm going to go and bring God glory. David says, I'm going to go and fight for God. But other people couldn't see David's strengths like God could because God gave him those strengths. And so Saul says in verse 38, he says, you can't fight like that. Let me give you my attire. He says, Saul clothed David with his own fighting attire and put a bronze helmet on his head. He also put armor on him. He was saying, you need to fight like I fight. One theologian said, nothing comes more naturally to people than trying to get someone to fight our battles the way, we would, uh, the way that we were fighting them. It's the idea that we think there's one way to do this the right way. And it comes from a really, really good place. But what Saul didn't see was that God uses our discipline and hard work to make his glory known in, in line with how he's created us. And so David says, no, I'm going to use my own stuff. 
It sometimes is a story of the church, it's a small diatribe, but it, we, we, we want to systematize sanctification. We want to believe that it all looks the same for everybody all time, and it starts in a really good place. Do your devotional in the morning, because that's when God meets you most intimately. We're, you know, pleated khaki pants, I always say. In the 1990s, when I was growing up, the big movement was to throw away all CDs that weren't like DC Talk and some other Christian artists. And that's fine, and that's good, and that's great, and they had the best intentions. But what we do is we think sanctification, growing in our walk, looks just like this and just like this alone, so everybody needs to do what we do and grow like we grow. And I think the purpose of God using David and how he made him, the purpose of us understanding that God is using David, not for a victory for David, but to increase his glory, is that glory is most increased for God when used through our diversity because God made us diverse in the first place. So as as the church, we should be the biggest champions for diversity there is because it shows us the majesty of God. And with an increase in diversity comes an increase in God's glory. We should fight for it and we should in all ways celebrate it if it goes back to the God who's good and who created. And so David is being used how God made him to show others how good God is. It's not a story about your giant or about David's giant. It's a story about God's glory, a story that we get to be a part of, you and me as we stand in the strengths of how God made us regardless of victory. That's why Ephesians 2 says that you are a masterpiece created by God because you have been made by God in very beautiful ways that he will use to bring glory to his name because that's our purpose. And so we have this idea that the story maybe isn't about a giant and it's not about David's victory over his giant. And, And David really wasn't that great of an underdog when he stepped into the strengths of how God already made him. But I think one of the hardest things that we have to overcome when we read this story and we grow it up, is the fact that it's not about David. That's difficult. Because we are a Western individualistic culture. Which means that when we read the Bible, we read the Bible and we think it's all about us all the time. We read the Bible and we say, I relate to Moses because I'm Moses. I relate to Joshua because I'm like Joshua. I relate to David because I'm like David. We put us in the place of the main character and we say this is how God's gonna work in and through us. And that's dangerous. I'm not saying it's not true all the time. I'm simply saying that's the only way we read the scriptures. That's dangerous because the Bible exists to teach us about God and then we learn about ourselves in the process. Not the other way around. We say it like this. You're not the hero of your story. Jesus is. And so when we read this story from an individualistic lens, because that's culturally who we are as Americans, and there's some good things that come from that, like you have individual sin and so do I, but at the same time, we have to understand this was written in the midst of a collective culture, meaning it was more about the bigger story of group identity and less about the individual victories that they had over battles. And if you're a Jewish kid, you read it in light of the collective, not the individual. So the story is never really about Goliath in your life so that you can find your inner David. That's not how they would have seen it or read it or understood it or interpreted it. Really, when you back out and get some perspective on this chapter in the middle of all the other chapters in the book of Samuel where we find it, it tells a completely different story about authority in the group collective of Israel. So David says, this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them, the bears and lions that I beat. He defies the armies of the living God. It's not about David. It's about collective identity in Israel. And here's what you have to know. God put Israel there so that people might see God. They failed. They failed. 
God put Israel there so that they might be Matthew 5, a light, that they might be salt, that they might show people there's another better way that reflects how good God is, and they failed. And so when he threatens Israel, he threatens the goodness of God. David got that. He who didn't, Saul. Saul was scared. So in the single combat warfare, you pick your biggest warrior, they pick their biggest warrior. You know who the biggest warrior was in Israel? Saul. It says in 1 Samuel 9 that the reason they picked Saul in the first place was because he was heads and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. But it also goes on to say that when, that when um, in verses 10 and 11, when, when Goliath approached Saul and says, come and fight me, he says, Saul got very afraid. And a whole side sermon, probably series, could be the fact that when you have leaders that choose self-preservation over the good of their people, bad things happen. And that's what Saul did here. He chose self-preservation at the expense of those he was supposed to lead in the first place. That's why the message of Jesus is beautiful, because he didn't. That's what he came to show us. He sacrificed for the good of the people he led. Saul was unwilling to do it. He threw a boy on a battlefield that he didn't think belonged. But what's really interesting is when you look at the context of this passage, when you look at the fact that, that, that Saul said, David, go and do, the real question this chapter is trying to answer is who's in charge? Because the chapter before, and you would have read it in succession, the chapter before is all about David's prominence. It's all about David literally being anointed king. Not to go too deep into it, Saul made some mistakes in turning against God one too many times, and God said, my blessing is off of you as the leader of my people. I don't want you to do that anymore. And so the prophet of God, Samuel, named for the book, he found Jesse because God led him there, David's dad, and he looked at all his kids and he found David and he said, this is the one who's gonna lead our people. You are the rightful king of Israel. That's in chapter 16, this is in chapter 17. And, and the way that the Old Testament talks about biblical leadership from God's people usually follows a pattern. God finds a man, he anoints a man, and then after that, that man has some kind of victory in battle to affirm God's anointing. We see it with Moses and the Egyptians. We see it with Joshua and Jericho. We see it with David and Goliath. And so the juxtaposition of Saul advocating his responsibility to lead his people that God might be glorified in the world is heightened because David's sitting there, newly anointed king, saying, I'll do it. This is the role of what kings do. The real question in this text is not about David and his giants. It's who's the rightful king of Israel? Who's gonna step up and do their job? Lead their people and show the rest of the world who God is. And David steps into that moment and he says, I will. He says, I will. And that's exactly what he did. If you go to verse 51, it says, when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they ran away. And here's why that's important. Because <laughs> if we see it through an individualistic lens, it's about David and his victory and he's the hero. But this is about who the rightful king is. And David is a representation of the true rightful king, which is Jesus. David stands for the ultimate kingdom that Jesus ultimately fulfills. And here's what we see in the text is that when kings won, from a collective mentality, when kings win, their people win too. So the Philistines didn't just stay there and throw another warrior up. They completely fled and the threat was gone. And so when David won, it was a win for all his people and he foreshadows Jesus, who is the true, ultimate, rightful king. We did a whole series on it a few weeks ago. And here's what we got to know. When Jesus wins, so do the followers of Jesus. And that's important. Because like I said before, this story doesn't grow up with us if we teach it's about victory over giants. Because sometimes giants seemingly win. And that's a really important word. They seemingly win. Because even Jesus died for a couple days and went into the grave. 
What this reminds us is that when our king wins, we win too in time. Sometimes it takes 40 days of humiliation for us to win. But what this is saying to us here is that ultimately because Jesus has victory over death itself, so do we. And if you read it from a collective perspective, you understand that it's pointing to the greater story of the scripture. Not that you and me are the hero, not even David, but Jesus. That we have hope even if your giants seemingly get the better of you today. Because this isn't the end of the story. Because although the giants might take a day or two or a battle here and there, the victory, it says in the scripture, ultimately belongs to the Lord. And any of our giants look pretty small paired up next to the victory of Christ. And as members of his kingdom, as followers of his rule and reign, we have hope in that. So it comes back to kind of what we were taught as kids, just with a little more nuance to it, that God really is bigger than our giants. But oftentimes if we make it about the giants, we lose hope if sometimes it doesn't break the way we think it should. And so we have to grow these stories up of ultimately a story about Jesus being king and us spreading the glory of God through how God made us. It's David and Goliath. It's the call and the cause of the church right here and right now. To stand up in the middle of uncertain times and say, let me tell you about a God who's good, regardless of what it looks like out the window. Let me tell you about how God made us. Let me tell you about the fact that I am going to proclaim the fame of God over anything else, and I'll stand up for his name in renown. That's what David did to a giant, and we get a chance to do that as a church because Jesus is our king, and Jesus wins. That's why David ends by saying, and I'll end with it too. He says, then all the land will realize that Israel has a God, and all the assembly will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will deliver into our hand. Pray with me. God, I'm thankful that you are good. I'm thankful for the story of David and Goliath, a story about much more than a single victory over a giant or any giants that we might have in our lives, a story about God's good glory and our role in promoting God's good glory. So give us, like David, courage to step into moments and show people that God is worth fighting for. Show people that God is worth standing up for. Show people that God's glory is our best good. And in that, give us compassion for others. Give us wisdom in how we respond and interact. And may we, like David, understand that, that ultimately you are our true king, that ultimately you lead us, and that ultimately you won through Christ. And may that give us hope, even when we face some really tough situations. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.